0: Please turn in your Bibles or to the center of your bulletin to Genesis chapter 17. I'll just say if you're visiting with us, it is not my pattern to bring Starbucks with me into the pulpit. It's not my pattern to drink at Starbucks at all. My wife said during the equip class, she said, it sounds like your voice is struggling. Let's, let me get you some tea with some honey in it. So I might need a little liquid support this morning, but, uh, but hopefully God will supply grace as well. This week we return in our study of the life of Abraham after a one-week break. Last Sunday I preached a topical sermon on the parable of the talents. Uh, Someone said to me at the door, I know why you preach a topical sermon this Sunday. Uh, You're stalling because you don't want to have to talk about circumcision for an hour. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny. But that is the subject of this message. The introduction of circumcision as a sign of the covenant with Abraham and how the Bible develops the subject of circumcision throughout the canon. A quick word to those who are visiting with us. One of the things you need to know about the manual church is that we preach the Bible. We don't come up with the script. We preach what God has revealed in His Word. And as the Bible is made up of 66 books and 40 plus authors, written over a couple of thousand years, tracking historical, social, and cultural events of an ancient people, you will sometimes inevitably come across things that seem awkward or unusual. But we're Bible people, and we want to know whatever the Bible has said, and we want to labor to understand it. And so one of the things God has done in His Word is revealed to us that this rite of circumcision formed part of His will... For His people Israel, for a set period of time in the Old Testament. And it may seem now, some 4,000 years on from the events of Genesis 17, uh, that this is somewhat awkward or irrelevant to us, but I want you to understand we believe that all that God has revealed in His Word is profitable for us to study and to labor to understand. And so I would encourage you this morning, visitors, children, all of us here, to listen carefully the word as it's preached, especially to the end of the sermon, as there's something that I think is especially relevant for us, indeed all of us uh, who have gathered here this morning, things we must learn on this subject and how the Bible treats it in the Scriptures. All right, so this passage, Genesis 17, with its introduction to the rite of circumcision, forms something of the backdrop to many significant passages in the Bible. So if you don't understand what circumcision is and the place that it played in the history of Israel, not only will much of the Old Testament seem obscure and mysterious to you and hard to understand, but actually much of the New Testament will seem mysterious to you. Because in many significant passages in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, or even the Lord Himself, have circumcision as something of the backdrop of substantial doctrines and teachings uh, that Christ and His Apostles are presenting. So Genesis 17, where the rite of circumcision is introduced, it's important material, important data to help us in putting our Bibles together and to understand even some of the greatest themes that are taught in all the Bible. So this is our plan this morning. I'm going to walk through the narrative of the passage. Pastor Ben read it out a moment ago. It's printed in your bulletins. So you can look at it in your translation of the Bible. Just walk through it briefly. And then after we see the major kind of events of Genesis 17, I want to talk about How God in the canon of Scripture develops this idea of circumcision. And what relevance it has for we who are the new covenant people of God. Okay? Let's consider the passage itself. Just look at the basic movements of the passage. Four main headings here to open up Genesis 17. The first is this. We see, number one, that God reasserts the promise. God reasserts the promise. God had made promises to Abraham. First, in Genesis 12, when He originally calls Him, those promises are restated and reaffirmed in a number of passages, as we've seen thus far. Most compellingly, in Genesis 15, where those original promises are formalized into a covenant. And now here, at the beginning of Genesis 17, when God is about to give the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, He reasserts the promises. And there's a few features here that should be highlighted First of all, God again promises that He will make Abraham the father of many nations. He says that you will be exceedingly fruitful. Nations will come from you. And for the first time ever, at least that we have in recorded Scripture, He says kings will come from you. Abraham, kings are going to come from your line. Verse 4, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I just want to remind you here briefly of what we've already seen in our series in the life of Abraham. And that is that of these initial promises that God made, land, seed, and blessing. Offspring's going to come from Abraham. A line's going to come from Abraham. There's an initial, sort of immediate fulfillment. God will give Abraham the promise on Isaac. And indeed, the nation of Israel will come from Abraham. Abraham's line, and God's even going to make another nation through Ishmael, the son that was born by Hagar, and indeed there will be kings that come from his line. There's going to be King Saul, King David, and King Solomon, but what we learn in the New Testament is there's a larger fulfillment of this, right? That through the seed of Abraham, God is going to bring Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings. Yes, Abram, kings are going to come from you, but God is going to do, abundantly above all that Abram could have asked or thought, He's going to bring the king, the king over all kings, who is Jesus, the son of Abraham. We know that the side of the cross, maybe not known yet to Abram here. But I want to keep that before us as we appreciate what God is doing here in redemptive history. The second feature we should note here is that God changes Abram's name to Abraham. So he reasserts the promise. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Hopefully, you know this if you're familiar with the Bible. We name our children based on all kinds of things, some more significant than others. Sometimes we just like the sound of a name, and that's why we name our kid that name, or we name him after a family member, or something like that, or if you're really into Reformed theology, you name them after a theologian like Owen or Calvin or Spurgeon or something like that. And um, well, in the Bible, name changes are a little bit more significant than that. Uh, they, They correspond to the purposes and plans of God. So God, by sovereign fiat, is saying, don't let anybody call you Abram anymore. You shall be called Abraham, which means something like father of many name had meaning and significance, it was indicative of the promise, but I just find this so so interesting, you know, Abram, today, if my name were to be changed to something else I'd have to inform you all of that, I I don't know, I'd probably send an email to all my contacts or text everybody and say, hey, don't call me Alex anymore, call me this. I don't know how Abram accomplished that, but I love to imagine someone coming to him and saying, hey, Abram, you know, uh, are you ready, we're going to dinner now. No, you can't call me Abram anymore. Call me Abraham. Well, why? Well, let me tell you why. Uh, because God has revealed that he is going to make me a father of many nations and that kings are going to come from my line and that in my old age, my wife's old age, we're going to conceive and bear a son and God's going to fulfill his promises. No. <laughs> well, that's at least how I imagine it. This covenant also is said to be an everlasting covenant. will extend to Abraham's offspring after him says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring afterwards. In other words, God's good purposes and His promise will extend beyond Abraham. The covenant will be not only with Abraham, but with his offspring after him, those who are truly the children of Abraham. And again, I'll just bring us back to this. This is not Primarily Abraham's physical descendants, though there's an immediate application there. What we learn in the New Covenant is that the children of Abraham are reckoned to be those who share Abraham's faith. They are the true offspring. And so what we should see as New Covenant believers, God saying here is that God's going to keep His covenant with us. God is going to send forth His Son as He has done, and He is in the process of bringing blessing to all the nations and tribes of the world. This covenant He will keep with the children of Abraham by faith. When we see finally under this first point that Abraham, or excuse me, God reasserts the land promise. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, there's an initial fulfillment. God does give to Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. But we know from Hebrews 11, what? That even Abraham knew that was only a temporary and initial fulfillment. What was Abraham looking for? He was looking for a heavenly country, a city that has foundations, a city whose builder and maker is God. His inheritance is our inheritance as Abraham's children by faith, namely the new heavens and the new earth, which we inherit forever with God far larger and greater than he could have possibly anticipated. Okay, that's the first point. God reasserts the promise. Now secondly, what happens in the text, God institutes circumcision as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. God institutes circumcision as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. So we see, God requires circumcision as an act of obedience. Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you, but I do require your obedience. My promise creates obedience. And he calls Abraham to obey by circumcising himself and his children and those he's bought with his money. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. I've told you what I'm going to do. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now remember, It's not like Abraham establishes his righteousness by circumcision. Genesis 15, 6, two chapters earlier than this, 12 years earlier than this, at least 13, 14 years earlier than this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith in God counted as righteousness. But faith, brothers and sisters, we've observed this about the nature of faith faith always works, faith always acts. Faith is a living and restless thing. And so faith responds in obedience. And so here, Abraham, who has had faith in the promise of God, is called to obedience by circumcising all the males in his house. And that's probably the second thing we should observe about this rite of circumcision. All males are to be circumcised, including male children. But note also, male servants, male slaves, they are to be circumcised also. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, is not of your offspring. But he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Every male in the Abrahamic community is to be circumcised. Number, Well, third observation here before we go into a third point. Circumcision is said, of course, to be a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant, a seal of the covenant. It's not the substance of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Covenants often have signs. I made a covenant with Jenna de Prima. This ring is the sign of that covenant. This ring is not my marriage. It's a piece of, I think, uh, what do they call it? It's, it's uh, white gold. It's just a sign. It's not my marriage, but it's a symbol. Of that marriage. Covenants often have signs. Circumcision was to function as a sign of something, as a symbol of something. And it is a sign of a covenant already made with Abraham. God, God is not entering into a second covenant now with Abraham. He's made His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 through a covenant-making ceremony there. Now He institutes a sign of that covenant. Getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, Romans 4.11, will make abundantly clear that it was a sign of Abraham's faith. Romans 4.11 says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What did this sign seal mean to Abraham? It was a seal of the righteousness God freely gave him on the basis of faith, or through faith, I should say. Well, circumcision is said also to be a condition... For membership among the Abrahamic community, verse 14 says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To be a member of the Abrahamic community and eventually the Israelite community, you must observe the rite of circumcision. All right now the, the third main point in the narrative. We've seen that God reasserts the promise, God institutes circumcision as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Thirdly, God promises a son by Sarah. God promises a son by Sarah. God essentially tells Abraham he is going to give him a son by Sarah, his wife. In fact, the Lord changes her name from Sarai to Sarah, he's going to make her the mother of many. And Abraham is incredulous. Why? Because his wife is very old. Uh, The way of women is long gone with her. So Abraham says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, could you bring the promise through Ishmael? I don't see my 90-year-old wife, as lovely as she is, bearing me a child in my old age. But verse 19, God said No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God makes clear here that his promise will be advanced through Sarah's son. It's not going to be Ishmael. He's not going to bring about his purposes through Sarah and Abraham's scheme of surrogacy through Hagar. No, God will bring about this promise in a miraculous fashion. He will give a child to a barren woman in her old age. And even in the means through which the promised son is born, God will do it in supernatural fashion, highlighting the fact that this is all a work of the sovereign grace and power of God. And as I think we observed two weeks ago now, this is actually the first time that it is revealed, at least that we have in Scripture it is revealed that the son would come through Sarah. That wasn't mentioned in Genesis 12. wasn't mentioned in Genesis 15. Maybe in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah thought, "Well, we'll take matters into our own hands and have a child by Hagar. Maybe that's how God will fulfill the promise. But here God makes clear: No, no, no. The promised son will come through Sarah, your own wife. And then the fourth and final point. Very simply, Abraham obeys God's command. All right, Lord, you're going to do this. I bow to your will. And what does Abraham do? Well, he circumcises all the males in his house. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Verse 27, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So that's the narrative. And the time that remains, I'd like to talk about how the Bible develops this issue of circumcision and how we're to think about it today as New Covenant Christians. Before I do that, I just want to give a quick sort of side note here, okay? Uh, some of you here, I just know this is on some people's minds, so I'll just put it out there. Some of you here will be familiar with what is called Pato baptism or the infant Baptist viewpoint on baptism. Uh, Presbyterians in particular advocate for infant baptism. Uh, they will argue that a very strong link exists between how circumcision functioned under the Old Covenant and how baptism functions under the New Covenant. Uh, though we greatly treasure our shared faith with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and though we profit greatly from our fellowship with them, and though I have the pictures of eminent Presbyterians gone before hanging up in my study, that we appreciate our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, it nonetheless must be made clear that in this respect, in this understanding of baptism, our Presbyterian friends are sorely mistaken. No such link exists in the Bible between circumcision and baptism, The people of God under the new covenant are constituted in an entirely different way than national Israel was constituted. All of the members of the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant, all of the members of the new covenant are clearly defined as those who have been born again and have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and who possess saving faith in Jesus Christ, Abraham's greater son." No one is rendered to be a member of the church or part of God's covenant people in the new covenant on the basis of birth or having Christian parents or through being baptized as an infant. Brother, sister, what makes you a member of the church and a member of God's covenant community is regeneration and new birth and actual saving faith and Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And the signs of membership in the covenant, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, one of which we celebrate this morning, are reserved only for those who have saving faith and provide evidence for the same. So my comments now on circumcision are not meant primarily as a refutation of Presbyterian teaching on infant baptism, but I just have to say it's in the background of some of my comments uh, on this doctrine. Okay. Okay. So, now all I want to do is to trace in the Bible, under the Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, where this issue of circumcision goes. It's introduced in Genesis 17. Well, how are we to think about it now? What does the Bible do with this teaching on circumcision? So, we'll consider first under the Old Covenant, second, how it's developed in the New Covenant. First of all, under the Old Covenant, three points. Number one, The rite of circumcision was first initiated as a sign of the righteousness Abraham had by faith. We've seen that already. The sign of circumcision is first given to us, Genesis 15, as a sign of the righteousness Abraham had by faith. That's all I'm going to say on the first point. Number two, circumcision was a sign of entrance into the covenant community. A sign of belonging among the people of God. Circumcision was not just a sign of righteousness Abraham had by faith when he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Circumcision also meant entrance into the people of God. The Abrahamic community which matures into the Israelite people. Tracking with me so far? Now, Now one thing you have to appreciate, and just say this up front, The people of God under the Old Testament was a mixed group. Mixed group of what? A mixed group of some people who were regenerate and actually had saving faith, and some people who did not. There were lost people among the Israelites. People among the Israelites who were counted among the national Israel, the covenant people, who are nonetheless not in heaven. Because though they had the right of circumcision performed on them, they did not have saving faith in God. The right of circumcision was merely an external outward sign given to people who were not regenerate. They still needed to have saving faith in God. So you could be a member of the Israelite people, technically part of the covenant community, but still not actually believe in the promises of God, still not have a regenerate heart, still not actually trust in the Lord as Abraham did. But one of the ways you were identified as a member of the Israelite people, God's covenant people... If you were a male, as if you were circumcised, and this identification of circumcision, over time in the Israelite consciousness, became inappropriately inflated in terms of its significance. So much so that by the time you get to Jesus' day and the days of the apostles, literally uh, uh, the Jews were known as the circumcision. Have you seen that in your New Testaments? You who are the circumcision. That's shorthand for you who are Jews ethnically and physically. And many Jews believe that by virtue of circumcision, the outward rite and ritual being performed, that they would be rendered right with God. That is not a notion that is built on the Old Testament teaching about circumcision. It is an inappropriate and false understanding of why circumcision was given. But yet many in Jesus' day believe that about circumcision. If I've been circumcised, well, I'm right with God. And if you are going to become part of the family of God, I don't care what nation you come from, got to be circumcised. Because circumcision is what is necessary in order for entrance into the covenant community. Well, it was that way in the Old Testament, not that way in the New Covenant. Okay, a third point that should be made about circumcision in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, and that is that circumcision, this is crucial, Circumcision as a sign was meant to point people to the need for regeneration and faith. Circumcision was meant to point people to the need for regeneration and faith. God does not have two programs of salvation. God has only ever saved men and women by grace through faith. That's how he saved Abraham. That's how he saved Moses. That's how he saved David. That's how we're saved in the new covenant. And the sign of circumcision was just that. It was a sign. It was a seal. It was an outward symbol that was to point people to a spiritual reality. Paul says in Romans 4.11, circumcision was given as the sign or the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith, which means circumcision was to point people to the reality of That I too can come into possession of the righteousness that God is pleased to grant on the basis of faith. Circumcision didn't give you righteousness, but it was a sign of the spiritual reality that God was willing to give and grant and count righteousness on the basis of faith just as He did with Abraham. So, 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 So young boys growing up were to think, to know, I can be right with God. If I, like my father Abraham, put my faith in God, well, then I could have that faith counted to me as righteous. See, it pointed to a spiritual reality. It pointed people to the need for faith and for regeneration, which was present in their father Abraham. So, in Deuteronomy 10.16, what does Moses say? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. What's he saying? This isn't just about the outward symbol. It's about the inward reality. Cleanse your heart. Circumcise your heart. Be regenerate in heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. To have one's heart circumcised is to be regenerate, and have faith like Abraham, and to love God. It was a pointer to a spiritual reality. In Jeremiah chapter 9, context is judgment on the people of Israel. Listen to how the word circumcision and uncircumcision are used in these two verses, Jeremiah 9, verses 25 and 26. God is going to come in judgment. We read this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh." Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. He's saying, you should never have contented yourself with the outward symbol, but were rather to respond to the outward symbol by the spiritual reality that it was pointing to, namely that God would give an offspring through Abraham, and that offspring would bring blessing and salvation to the nations. It was to point them to faith in the promises of God. That's how circumcision was meant to function. And so any Jew in Jesus' day or in Paul's day who who said, well, you know, I've been circumcised physically. I have the right of circumcision, so I'm in the New Covenant community. I'm part of the people of God. That was not a valid view of circumcision. It was always the issue that you actually have your heart changed, that you actually have faith in God. And this is why we can read in Colossians 2.11 what is there said of Jesus, that He has circumcised our hearts with the circumcision made without hands. This is the issue of faith and regeneration, and circumcision was only a sign to point to that larger spiritual reality. All right, now let's consider how this is developed under the New Covenant. It's kind of the trajectory of the Old Covenant, how circumcision functioned and was utilized. How are we to think about it in the New Covenant? A few points. Number one, recognize first God's people are counted or constituted in a completely different way under the new covenant. To be part of the covenant community, they're counted, constituted in a completely different way. God's people, members of the new covenant are understood to be those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and have put their faith in Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is part of the Lord's people? Who's part of the church? Who's part of the covenant community now in the new covenant? It is not just those who have the outward symbol of circumcision. Rather, it is those who have saving faith in the Son of Abraham, the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. Let me show you this in Jeremiah 31. Please turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. This important background to see how it is that God will bring his people together under the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, this is a text that should be highlighted in your Bible, keep a note of it somewhere if you don't like drawing in your Bible, crucial text, here, Jeremiah is anticipating an end of the old covenant era, and that God is going to make a new covenant with his people, Here's what he says about it. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. It's a word play there. It's not just going to be written outwardly on stone. It's going to be written on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they should be My people, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know Me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What, what is Jeremiah saying? In the new covenant, all of the members of the covenant will be regenerate. They'll all have saving Faith. They'll all have the law written on their hearts. The Spirit of God will be within them. And, and see, in the new covenant, it's not going to be the way it was under the old covenant. Here you have a bunch of circumcised folks. That's no indication of actual saving faith. Just an outward symbol, right? And so, there was a need under the old covenant for each one to say to his neighbor, Do you know the Lord? Have you believed and trusted in God? You're trusting His promise. Do you have that faith like our father Abraham, which was counted to Him as righteousness? It would have done no good to say, well, yes, I've been circumcised. That's not the point, brother. Do you believe Yahweh? Do you trust Him? Is your righteousness built on faith in His promise? There was a need to do that. You had to evangelize members of the community. You cannot have assurance that all these Israelites you were gathered with all necessarily had saving faith in Christ as promised. But see in the new covenant the promise is each member of the covenant community will be regenerate in heart, will have saving faith. They all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. There's no need anymore to evangelize one another in the family of God. The covenant community of the church is reserved for those who actually have a saving connection to Jesus. Faith in Abraham's son, who actually had been born again and regenerate of heart. They constitute the new covenant community. Second point now. I know that's not about circumcision, but it's important background to how the New Testament would have us think about circumcision. Number two, membership in the covenant is thus no longer restricted to those with a physical, genealogical attachment to Abraham. Membership in the covenant is thus no longer restricted to those with a physical, genealogical attachment to Abraham. But rather in the New Covenant, it's open to anyone. Open to anyone. Doesn't matter what nation you're a part of. Doesn't matter who your mommy and daddy were. Doesn't matter if. If you could trace your lineage back to Father Abraham. Don't you know, by the way, God is able to make sons of Abraham out of these rocks? Thank you very much. No, membership in the covenant community is not based on a genealogical or physical or biological attachment to Abraham. You don't have to have Abraham's DNA in order to be part of the covenant community. What you need to have is the kind of faith that Abraham had. Faith that believes the promise of God. God holds him to be true and right, believes that he will bring redemption and salvation and reconciliation, and that he will bring deliverance for the peoples of the world. And now we see that with much greater clarity, right, than Abraham saw it. Faith still functions in the same way. We just have more clarity on faith's object. We believe now in Abraham's greater son, who is the father of us all who have faith. If we, like our father Abraham, have faith, we are counted among the covenant community. It will not be about a physical attachment to father Abraham, but rather it will be about a spiritual attachment, union with Abraham's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. In the new covenant, membership is open to anyone. Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, who has come into saving union with Abraham's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he, Abraham, had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Well, why? What's the point of that? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father, verse 12, of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only on the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, brothers and sisters, in the New Covenant, faith in Christ is the issue. You want to be part of the New Covenant community, the church? It's not about circumcision. It's about whether or not you have saving faith in the son of Abraham. If you, like Abraham, have faith in the promises of God, Abraham trusted in the same God that we trust in. Now, we know more about what this God has done now. See, the same God that Abraham trusted and we believe also in, he who has raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead, done so for our justification. But those who are rendered to be the children of Abraham will not be rendered the children of Abraham upon an ethnic attachment to Abraham but on an attachment that is secured by faith in Abraham's son, union with him. By right, a third point. And this is really the issue. What does that mean for circumcision? Instituted in Genesis 17. We're new covenant Christians now. What, what's the deal with circumcision? Ready? Here's the thesis of the sermon. Physical circumcision is rendered totally irrelevant. What's the New Testament teaching on physical circumcision? It is meaningless, it is profitless, it is totally irrelevant for the people of God today. The New Testament writers, Paul in particular, could not be more negative about circumcision. Particularly as a stipulation for inclusion. Among the covenant people of God. So you're in Romans 4. If you would, look back to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verse 25. Listen how Paul works with this issue of circumcision. He says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. I don't care if you were circumcised. If you're a lawbreaker, which is all of us, I don't care if you were circumcised, it's meaningless doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't advance you into God's good graces. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What's he saying? It's not about physical circumcision. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's he saying? Outward circumcision is rendered pointless. It's rendered useless. It doesn't get you anywhere with God. Circumcision as a right does not advance you in His good graces. Rather, it's faith in God. Trust in God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you don't need to turn there, but Galatians 5 verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. Galatians 5.4 You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. If you're going to try to achieve your status, your righteousness, by outward signs and by obeying the Mosaic prescriptions, you have fallen away from grace. Verse 5 For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. Don't miss that. There's something that counts for nothing, and there's something that counts for something. What counts for nothing? I don't care if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What I do care about is whether you possess that faith that works through love. That's the issue. That is The instrument through which one enters the community of God's people and is counted right with God. 1 Corinthians 7.19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what matters. Have you been born again, brother? Have you been born again, sister? That's the issue. Not whether you have this outward symbol or not. Philippians 3.2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, those who would insist that you must be circumcised in order to be right with God. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, who, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's a fourth point that should be made. Maybe you're wondering this. Is there then no sign anymore of the new covenant? If circumcision is rendered pointless, meaningless, profitless, irrelevant, are we just done with signs and symbols? Well, no, of course not. There is a sign and symbol. Two in particular in the new covenant, but it's not circumcision given to unregenerate male infants nor is it infant baptism given to unregenerate babies. It's baptism for every man, woman, boy, or girl who has saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham. It's also the Lord's Supper, which is a symbol of ongoing communion with Jesus Christ. What we proclaim in baptism is an actual, not a potential, an actual, not a potential, an actual saving union with Christ that we possess. The person being baptized is saying, I have been united to Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And that's what is symbolized in baptism, Romans 6. As you go under the water, what is being demonstrated, symbolized, That you have been united with Jesus in His death. You have been buried with Christ. Rendered dead to sin. And coming up out of the water is symbolizing that you have been united to Christ in His life and in His resurrection. And have been raised with Him to newness of life. In other words, it is a symbol, a sign of an actual present spiritual reality. That you actually do possess a saving attachment to Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper then is a symbol of ongoing communion. With him, instituted by the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. It is for those who believe that Jesus Christ has actually shed his blood for their sins. It's a new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. I give this to you. Take from it. Eat. Remember the Lord's death. This is my body given for you, my blood shed for you. It's not hoping that Jesus' blood will one day be shed for me. Or that one day I'll have faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made. But rather it is a symbol of an actual saving attachment to Jesus. Actual communion with Jesus in his death and his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And I would just appeal to you brothers and sisters. How much greater and grander is this new covenant? Not restricted to eight day old male infants As a symbol and a perspective and hopeful sign that maybe one day they might have faith like Abraham did. Rather, in the New Covenant, it's opened up and enlarged to all the peoples of the world. Whether they're Jews or not is hardly the point. It's whether or not they have faith in Abraham's greater son. And therefore, men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation have access to God And in this covenant, we don't have to worry about whether or not everybody's saved. No, those who are in the church, those who are in the covenant are people who have actually been given faith and regeneration and new life through Jesus Christ. Each member of the covenant is rendered to be one who is a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham through faith in Abraham's greater son. Now, there's a final point that needs to be made, and I'll close with this. Does the irrelevance of circumcision mean anything for us? So have I spent, what, 45 minutes here or so? Just telling you, Genesis 17 said you need to have circumcision. The New Testament says it doesn't matter anymore. Great. That would be to miss the point entirely. The irrelevance of circumcision in the New Testament is meant to highlight the significant priority, the urgent need that you be born again. It's not just, well, we don't have to be circumcised anymore, or we don't have to observe these particular rites anymore. We don't have to, 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 to do the whole Day of Atonement thing, and we don't have to light the candles, and we don't have to have all these processions and all these rites and things like that. It's not just that we don't have to circumcise our male infants anymore. It's not that. The point is to say you must be born again. We have no confidence in the flesh, whether it's circumcision or whether it's our IQ and that we think we're especially bright or pretty or attractive or our good outweighs our bad. We have no confidence in the flesh. Rather, we recognize that when Paul and the other New Testament writers are saying you don't need to be circumcised anymore, you're not counted part of the covenant community on the basis of the circumcision made with hands and on some kind of outward symbol, what's he saying? He's saying there's a deeper thing you need to pursue. True heart changed by the Spirit of the living God. Which means we cannot be content with any sort of religious formalism, any sort of rituals or rites, any sort of external law keeping, all the doings and actings of our lives, they will give us nothing in terms of standing before God. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has wrought can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my cares or sighs or tears can bear my awful load. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. But in the irrelevance of circumcision, there's a call to us. Believe like your father Abraham and the God who justifies the wicked. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no hope to be found in external rites and symbols. It is only to be found in the son of Abraham and in having faith in him. Being regenerated in the heart, circumcised in the heart, born again to a living hope children here, you need to know this. Your parents cannot put faith in Christ for you. You are not right with God because you have Christian parents. You're not right with God because you go to this church. You're not right with God because maybe you go to a Christian school or something like that. Those things will get you nowhere with God. What needs to happen for you? You need to go to Jesus Christ and you need to ask him to save you from your sins. You need to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how you get right with God. You believe in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, that he died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead. And the good news is that God is pleased to justify you by faith and to count you right with him through a saving attachment to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please do not get this confused. We do not believe that you can become right with God through any other means except saving faith in Jesus Christ the Son of God. And the good news that Abraham believed as the gospel was preached to him beforehand, Galatians 3 8, is that if he believed God through whom would bring blessing to all the nations, through his offspring, he would be counted right with God. You can be counted right with God this very morning. Not if you are baptized, if you come and take communion, or if you follow some outward sign or ritual. You can be right with God through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would Make us to be a people who put no confidence in the flesh. That we would have all our confidence in Christ through whom we are saved. Through whom we are made right with you. We pray that you would deliver us from all boasting. And what we've said or done. Or felt or thought. Boasting and whatever ceremonies we could perform. We pray that all of our hope would be stayed on Jesus Christ. Who is the solid rock of our salvation. We thank you. That in your mercy and your great grace, you are pleased to do all that is needed to bring about our salvation. What you ask of us is that we put our faith and trust in what you have done. Please give the gift of faith now. Please move among this assembly. Please don't allow us to find confidence in anything else. May it be true of all that our hope is built in nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. May we treasure what our Lord has done. For all of us who are in Christ, bless our celebration of this reality in our celebration of communion here in a few moments. May we recognize that you have done the needed thing. You have paid it all. And it is through faith in that sacrifice that we're counted right with you. Bless us in this meditation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.